loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Laura Davis. Laura is the author of seven books, including The Courage to Heal and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages and sold 2 million copies. In addition to writing books that inspire and change people's lives, the work of Laura's heart is to teach. For more than 20 years, she's helped people find their voices, tell their stories, and hone their craft. Laura loves creating supportive, intimate writing communities online, in person, and internationally. You can find Laura at lauradavis.net, and today we'll be talking about her new and really beautiful memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, a mother-daughter memoir. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, Yes, I was going to say welcome back is actually the right thing to say because I had you on to talk about I thought we'd never speak again. And uh, of course, that was in the backdrop as I was reading your memoir because I'd read Courage to Heal way back when. And then, uh, of course, I read I thought we'd never speak again preparing for that interview. And those books were teaching books. This book is teaching by personal sharing by by exposing yourself and i i want to tell you how very brave i find the book and how beautifully written thank you thank you i I especially love hearing it was beautifully written i i worked so hard um you know because it's a big learning curve to go from writing an information book um you know where you're, you're teaching it's more like a curriculum almost to writing something that has to be lyrical and it has to be compelling and it has to get people to turn pages so even though i'd been um, teaching writing for over 20 years i had to learn a lot of new skills as a writer uh, to pull off this memoir uh, and that was really thrilling to do <laughs> and i know from having you know we're we're friends on facebook i follow what you do i get your emails um, I know that it was a big struggle to write. And so let's start with that because um, I can imagine I'm working on a memoir right now and um, the things that you choose to tell and not tell and how it, it doesn't work unless you tell uh, from my view, that's what a memoir is about the real story. Right. But tell me about how hard it was to actually tell the story the, and the writing, I could see, would be another part of that, making sure the writing was was excellent. But it's also a hard story. And maybe for people who don't, don't uh, know the previous books, to just share the heart of the story, how you came to write it and what it's about. Yeah, so um, The Burning Light of Two Stars, it, it tells the story of the embattled, it's really the only word to say, embattled relationship I had with my mother, our determination to love each other. And at the end of her life, this dramatic and surprising collision course we ended up on. Um, When I was in my 20s, my mother and I experienced a terrible rift. 
And it took us the next 20 years to struggle to find our way back towards each other. And and I write about that in the book uh, you mentioned, I thought we'd never speak again. Um, and I would have said at that time that we had reconciled successfully. Um, but then my mother grew old, and when she was 80, um, she lived in New Jersey where I had grown up, and I lived in California, and I had really consciously moved 3,000 miles away from her earlier in my life because I felt like I needed that kind of distance to have the space to to become my own adult separate person. You know, mm-hmm. I, I needed that distance from her. I needed to create a boundary. Um, and so we were 3,000 miles away from each other. And I think in many ways, our relationship worked because of the distance. There was this buffer between us. But she called that day, um, and this is the what's called the in, in the business. It's called the inciting incident. It's the thing that kicks the whole story into being. Is she called up uh, and announced she was moving to my town for the rest of her life? And you know, part of me, uh, I freaked out. I completely freaked out and panicked. <laughs> I can imagine. My mother did that earlier. I'm glad she didn't do it in that very final thing. <laughs> Because <laughs> we have very similar stories, actually. Oh my God! I also I didn't know moved that. to California to differentiate from from my family. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so you know, I I was dreading it, and also you know, pissed off that she just told me. Um, and then it was. I felt my whole life was going to be disrupted, which of course it was. Uh, but there was also a part of me that kind of longed to see if it was possible for us to reconcile the rest of the way. You know, we had we had reached the state of what I call de- detente, you know, where we were able to function with each other and be cordial. And I could go through the motions of interacting with her, but I always was walled off. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll read you something about that um, later. Um, but my mother came and she started to develop dementia. And the what she went through in her dementia, you know, all the the symptoms, especially in the early stages, um, she, you know, became a rageaholic. She was incredibly anxious. Um, she was agitated. She would repeat herself. She was explosive. And all those qualities were the very qualities that had been so incredibly challenging for me as her daughter uh, when I was growing up and as a young adult. And so her decline triggered all of that again. And so, you know, suddenly this reconciliation we had uh, started to fall apart, at least for me on the inside. And mm. uh, But I had made a promise to care for her for the rest of her life. And that's basically the story that the memoir tells is, you know, could I find it in my heart to love her unconditionally? And despite this terrible history we had had, was I capable of becoming the daughter she needed me to be? You know, the way in which I so resonated with that is that um, I... Maybe it can be actually generalized to mothers in our mother's generation that they fought so hard to have lives of substance beyond their families and all of that. And I think my mother, at least you can say for your mother, had had this idea that then I would fulfill the promise, right? (laughs) Or something. I don't know. And the ways in which she didn't accept who I was or didn't like who I was or didn't like what I said or did, she had a hard time letting go of. And for me, that, that really created a lot of resentment because 
she had laid me out to be myself. You know, she'd set me up to become myself, but then it wasn't uh, accepted. And it took a long time for me anyway, you can tell me about you, to go first, to accept her, you know, (laughs) and let it go. It's very hard to do, isn't it? It is really hard to do. And, you know, on top of that dynamic, which I would just say like ditto, 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 um, you know, my mother had also really betrayed me at the worst moment of my life. Um, I came to her when I was 28 years old, just turned 28, and to tell her that her father had sexually abused me as a child. And she denied it. She insisted I was making it up. She chose to, you know, defend her dead father over her living daughter. And, you know, and then I ended up writing uh, my first book, The Courage to Heal, which was a guide for uh, women survivors of child sexual abuse, which became this like, really unexpected bestseller. And I was very public then um, as an incest survivor for a number of years. And so, you know, from my mother's point of view, that just was like the nail in the coffin. Not only was I making these accusations, but, you know, I was bad-mouthing the family on national TV. So that, And everyone that just like, knew it. <laughs> and everyone knew it, right? <laughs> my mother was really into everyone knew it. Um, uh-huh. I think also maybe generational in part. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I really... At that point, it was I was going through so much trying to heal from this trauma, and I really needed and wanted the support of my mother, you know, and, and she absolutely could not give it to me, and she absolutely wanted me to recant and, and to make it all go away, and we both really had crossed a line that neither one of us could come back from, mm-hmm. and um, that was the period of our, our deepest estrangement, and, um, you know, it, it's interesting, I, I, I was thinking about it today, because today is her birthday. Mm. Um, She would have been 94 years old today. And so I was reflecting a lot on her. And, you know, I realized that that period when we were estranged, I actually thought about her every single day. You know, Mm. I mean, we were not speaking. And when we tried to get together, it would be this like explosive mess. But even though I was away and saying, I don't want to see you, I don't want to talk to you, she was living in my head. You know, I was I was hearing her voice. I was thinking about her all the time. And, you know, I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, but there was a part of me really longing to see if there was any way to repair this very severely damaged relationship, you know. Um, you know, I, I had an experience when my own mother died um, where I felt as if the wall had been removed. I felt um, in a bad way, like I was going to fall over. <laughs> and I had never really thought of her that way as, as kind of something I was bumping up against to keep my balance. Uh, I never thought of it that way when she was, she was living. And it, it, what you're saying reminds me of that sort of, um, oh, we were, we were in constant relationship, maybe even as uh particularly in the, in the conflict parts. You know, that's, that's what was, uh, was happening at the time, I guess. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've referred to this, this kind of mother-daughter knot in my case. I, I, sometimes I'll say we were two souls who could not quit each other. <laughs> you know, it, it, mm-hmm. we really had every reason in the world to never speak again, and yet both of us kept trying 
um, in every way we could to reconnect, you know, and we failed many, many, many times. And it took a very long time for us to even achieve kind of a, a workable level of reconciliation. Um, and then, you know, as she got older, I wanted to see, can I even go further than this? Can I love her? Can I allow myself to love my mother? Well, and I have to say, I'm gonna, I'm going to. Before we get too far, I would like you to kind of read the read a part of the book about that initial estrangement and and what what that experience, uh, what experience led to that. But um, to me, you know, you committed to your healing, despite whether anyone rejected you or not. Right? <laughs> um, you didn't recant. You you committed to it. To me, that must have been absolutely required to get to the place where you had that question. Yes, um, I, you know I think that's really important because um, you know I actually in the in the back of this book I put a little note to people who are dealing with estranged uh, relationships, and I really wanted to to kind of have a little addendum that said you know what my mother and I achieved is not necessarily right for everyone. And there are definitely situations where trying to reconcile with someone who is just too abusive or too toxic um, is, is going to be emotionally devastating and is not a good choice. Um, it doesn't mean you still can't find a, a place of reconciliation within yourself where you make peace with the relationship, but you may choose to never interact with that person again. And I, I didn't want to create some kind of like Pollyanna picture right. like you know this is this is the path for everyone this was a really hard path for me and it was the path in my life and my mother had although she had some very challenging qualities she had many wonderful qualities mm -hmm. and so you know there was something to be redeemed sure would you mind sharing the the um part of your book that really refers to what happened for you as a as a kid before we get too too far into you and your mother's uh, future? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read. Um, this is an edited version of um, this chapter called "Dirty Old Man," and it just will give you a little bit of a sense of what I was up against in my family. Um, and my mother. All you need to know, really, is my mother's name is Tammy, like Tammy, but with an E. Uh, Laura, fourteen. Tammy, forty-three. New York City. The summer of 1971, my breasts grew overnight, and I didn't know what to do with them. I covered them with baggy shirts, but they rose like mountains anyway. When I walked down the street, cars slowed and men whistled. I was propositioned all the time. Midway through the summer, Mom and I drove to New York to see Bubby and Papa. That was my name for uh, my grandparents. At 14, I still had no conscious memory of my grandfather's abuse, but other things about him made me drag my heels that day. I was dreading a ritual that had long been practiced in my family. As all the girls, mom, her sisters, and all the girl cousins before me reached adolescence, Papa insisted they lift their shirts and bare their budding breasts for his inspection. It was a rite of passage, a family tradition. After we entered the dark apartment, Papa took one look at my chest and chuckled with delight. 
Are they growing yet? I shrunk away from my body until I could no longer feel the sticky summer heat on my skin, just a cool, empty place inside. Mom looked at me expectantly. Papa waited for me to comply. Let me see, just a little peek. He said it lightly. Wasn't this all just an amusing little joke? I fingered the hem of my white peasant shirt. The embroidery on top was turquoise, green, and gold. They were looking at me, waiting. Papa's eyes gleamed with anticipation. No. The word ignited from somewhere deep inside me. Mom's face hardened. Lori, what's the big deal? Do you have to be so unpleasant? We all did it. I pulled the bottom of my shirt down over my jeans. The words tumbled out of an unfamiliar place. I don't want to. Mom's eyes flared with anger and her shoulders squared. Don't be so uptight, Lori. It will only take a minute. She looked at me appraisingly as she had so many times before. You have a lovely figure. You have nothing to be ashamed of. That's where the memory ends. The only thing I know for sure is that I didn't lift up my shirt and that I was the only girl in the family ever to refuse. Sometimes when I think back to this moment, I imagine it happening at another time of year with our whole family crammed into that tiny apartment. In that version, I see my teenage self standing up to all of them Every one of my aunts and cousins, all the women and girls, the ones from the past and the ones from the future, generations of them shouting, why are you making such a big deal about this? We all did it. A whole chorus of shirtlifters clamoring for me to bare my chest. Just one look. Give the dirty old man one look. But I didn't listen to any of them. A kernel of resistance rose up inside me. I said no. It would be years before I'd remembered what had happened with Papa when I was small. But someone fierce woke up inside me that day. She soon dropped back into slumber. But she was there. <sighs> you know, that... They say you can't know the present except looking back on it like that is such a pivotal moment in becoming a person who came to terms with what happened with him and it just really affected me when I read it and affected me just just now when I listened I'd like to you know talk about it a little bit more but it's time for a break so we'll go to a break and then come back to that listeners you can find links to my website and social media the good grief page at voice america to like all, all like, share, etc. Get on my email list. And to find Laura Davis, you can go to lauradavis.net. Be back soon. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? 
choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private tv channel we support multiple media formats so all of your video content can be in one place we offer a number of advertising and video packages for more information visit voiceamerica.tv if you think you've seen online tv like this before let us surprise you Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com dot com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones to reach cheryl or her guest today please call 1-866-472-5792 that's 1-866-472-5792 you may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Laura Davis, the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars, a mother-daughter memoir. And that reading you shared before the break, Laura, I was thinking two things. Um, you know, it must have been so vulnerable to start writing that. And I was curious about, you know, whether it remains so for you or not. Um, and, and also just, I've worked with so many um, childhood sexual abuse survivors who at first cannot remember the act, the, the, the main thing that happened, but experiences like you just described in that passage start seeming off to them. Um, you know, wait, that didn't, that wasn't right, you know, and, and that sort of sometimes opens up remembering, you know, the, the real, the, the bigger traumas, that's a trauma in my opinion, but the bigger traumas, um, would you say having that experience, being aware of that experience of saying no, maybe was a step along the way to remembering? Um, I, I don't really think so, because this this thing that my grandfather did was like common knowledge in the family. No one ever denied it. And, you know, and it was so interesting, because when I came out and said that he had sexually abused me when I was little, 
um, everyone was like, that never could have happened. He was such a good person, you know, and, and they didn't see any correlation between this behavior that they did acknowledge and the fact that he might be a perpetrator. So, you know, I, people, they really twist the way they think about things. I, well, I just always found that yeah. really, really bizarre because they don't want people to are face. horrified by this. Right, right. They're horrified by this. And, and, you know, the first time I told someone I, and they reacted, it was like, oh, you know, sometimes it takes someone else's response to know that something shouldn't have happened. Absolutely. And and it it connected in my mind as I was reading with how people pull off denial, right? They have to normalize some things that just are not okay, including this, right? What grandfather does that? <laughs> but every everyone just took it as kind of this quirk or something. Um and so, you know, I, I imagine there had to be a moment, maybe even after the memories came, where you realized, no, that wasn't okay. But part of you did know it then, didn't, didn't you? Because you refused. Yeah, I refused. I refused. And, and like I said, that, that part of me uh, went, went, went back to sleep. But, you know, there was, I have a very strong, courageous core and, you know, what's kind of ironic to me as I look back now from the distance on this whole relationship with my mother is that, you know, I feel like it's because of her that I developed the strength to face the things I was able to face. Mm-hmm. And they were the very same things that she could not face. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, you know, now I think about her generation. I, you know, I think I think about the time she was raised. I think about the family she grew up in. She, she was... Um, poor from an immigrant family in New York City. I think about, you know, the roles of women at that time and the options for women. I, I'm from a Jewish background. I think about the the epigenetics of trauma being passed down the family line. And, Certainly. you know, my perspective has just changed. You know, there, there's a an epigraph that I, I put in the front of the book. It was um, a writer named Deborah Fruche. And she said, um, every time I look in the rearview mirror, the past has changed. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that for me, that's what writing a memoir was about. <clears throat> and I have written about my mother before, but, um, you know, now I'm much older. I have a really different perspective. I'm a mother, a grandmother, and I see the whole thing from, it's kind of like like going up to 30,000 feet. Um, and it's not just this like embroiled conflict between me and her. I, I see us in a much bigger uh, landscape. Um, than I did yes. before. Yes, absolutely. I resonate with that a lot. And then this is a side question, but because I uh, love memoir so much, you know, the ones that I love are uh, lay bare, right? But um, I wondered if if you retain that sense of rawness that, you know, um, that comes from telling the truth like that as you kept rewriting or whether at some point it stops having that impact? I think it has that impact like the first draft. You know, like I remember writing some of the scenes in this book and just sobbing as I wrote, you know, just feeling wrecked. I mean, I had to get back into therapy. There was so much coming up for me uh, when I was writing it. But, you know, I've written each scene in this I, no, no exaggeration a hundred times. So, you know, as you start crafting it, you start to think about it as a story 
and not just, it becomes much more than a, a journal entry or a recollection. And I'm thinking about how it is for the reader to hear this story and I'm shaping the story. I mean, I'm minimizing some aspects and putting more attention or spotlight on other aspects because, you know, you write a book, it has to have a, a it has to be dramatic. Um, so, you know, you drop out some of the boring things. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't feel really any emotion about anything in this book anymore. Um, and also, you know, I, I got to the end of my mother's life and I felt like we had really got, I had gotten to a place of peace and resolution with her that was profound. So, you know, I think if I had, if she had died suddenly or I had felt unresolved, I think it might be different. Um, but I, I felt like something was completed, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, what I had yearned for um, when she first arrived. Um, there, there's actually another another little piece I'd like to read, which I think kind of captures the essence of the trajectory of this protagonist, you know, and because it's a memoir, it's me. Uh, but <laughs> uh-huh. I think this is, you know, and I think I'm reading this because I think a lot of people are in this position with a mother or a parent and uh, where we're, there's just a gap between us. Yes. Um, so this takes place uh, when she's 80 and she, or 80 or 81, she's just moved out to California. Um, she's starting to have dementia. Um, and I'm going through all the motions of being a good daughter. You know, I'm doing the right things. I'm showing up for her. I'm fielding her endless phone calls. I'm taking her to the doctor. I'm doing research. I'm, you know, just setting up her pills. I'm doing all the things. I'm going through the steps, you know, of what a good daughter would do. Um, but really, I'm still cold towards her. And I, I went over one day to visit her, and she confronted me about that. And I, then I wrote this. Three decades earlier, I had erected an impenetrable wall between us, a fortress with narrow slits so I could watch her approach. I ensured that my defenses were prepared any time she came near me. I always had an escape plan. It's true we later reconciled, and the fact that we were able to create a functional relationship was a miracle. But it wasn't an intimate miracle, because I never took down my wall. Oh, I taught myself to be kind to her in a fake-it-till-you-make-it sort of way. But I still held her at bay. My wall just got subtler. It wasn't permeable. It was hard and opaque, and there was no door. We only met in the antechamber, the common room where guests are received. Only my polished self was on display, my masked self, and only in the antechamber. Mom never saw my inner sanctum, and I never saw hers. I got as close as I could within the constraints I had established, but closed is closed, and a closed heart is a lonely one. The price I paid to keep my mother out, at first with withdrawal, later with an armed fortress, and finally with the polite rules of detente, was love. The pure, unfettered love I longed for, the pure, unfettered love she craved. That day in her kitchen when I couldn't comfort her, I had to face it. My mother was still a stranger to me, with tentacles of need I was loath to touch. 
I wanted to be more than kind, to do more than merely what was right. I wanted to love my mother, just once, freely and with the relief of a lost, exhausted child, beyond words and beyond all pretense. I wanted to lay my head on a place that was safe, just once, before it was too late. Mm. Mm. That longing, huh? So that's, you know, that, that, was, that's deep. Was, that was driving me, um, you know, when I had the, the, the years that she was in California to um, try to get there. Yes. Um, I have to confess that I had a secret hope uh, that my mother would die first. I longed to have that time with my father, but then, uh, (laughs) because we were we were close, I wanted to take you and your you and your dad were close. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which he would have absolutely hated, by the way. (laughs) He didn't like being taken care of a whole lot. But that aside, I longed for that. Then he died. And I consider those years between when he died and when my mother died transformative in our relationship, my mother and I, um, in the same ways you're talking about, that um, she needed me in a way that was very different. And I really wanted to come through and I had to face up to things to do that. It's hard. It's not an easy thing to do when you have, uh, my history is not, not the same as yours and I guess I don't like to compare traumas, but not not quite as traumatic, but it was hard anyway. So I I resonate with the idea that sometimes these incredibly difficult things also are worth it uh, because I get the feeling from your book that was really worth it for you, the 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 work to to get there. Yes, it. it um... You know, it changed my life, and it, it, it's it was really a trajectory of um, a closed heart to a much more open one. And you know, I've benefited from that since her death. I I feel like my capacity uh, for compassion, for love, um, for extending myself to someone else has expanded. And it it was because I was her caregiver, um, despite everything. Um, and I, you know, I needed a lot of support. And I, 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 I you know, I, my um, my spouse was fantastic. I mean, she loved her mother-in-law. She advocated for her with me, and and really would point out to me the ways that I was boxing my mother into her worst qualities and kind of <laughs> setting those in stone. Mm. And her good mm. qualities just sort of floated away. Um, and and so she she was really pivotal. Um, like I said, I got back in therapy. I joined. Uh, my mother and I actually were in a, a support group together. I, of course, orchestrated it. It was called the um, Early Stage Memory Loss Support Group. It was it was through the Alzheimer's Association, and that saved my life. You know, I mean, uh, right. we'd get together um, on Tuesdays, and the people with memory loss would go in one room with one facilitator, and those of us who were the caregivers would go into this other room, and, and those people were my lifeline. Uh, it's really hard, and it's really hard anyway, but when you have a complex history, um, it becomes much more challenging. Absolutely. I'm thinking of my kids because she was a fa- my mother was a fabulous grandmother. Uh, it was just enough further out that they didn't have any of the stuff, and boy, they would defend her. 
if I if I expressed any irritation or referred at all to the problems between us, they they didn't like it. <laughs> so that kept me sort of honest about it. <laughs> they still do it, actually, all these years later. <laughs> Glad I have kids, I guess, <laughs> is what I'll say about that, for sure. So, um, you know, there's there's a subtext in the book, many, but the one I'm thinking of is just the hard work of caregiving, which of course I'm very familiar with. And in particular, the trip that you took your mom on to see her sister, which um, just sounded so, so, so challenging, but I was... I was imagining, and and you tell me how it is for you, but I was imagining that looking back on that, I would hope that you feel incredibly good to have done it. Um, I feel amazing. I mean, it was, um, you know, my uh, Karen and I took my mother to Florida, um, you know, so it's two air, I think a I don't even think we could get a direct flight. I think we had to change planes, which was just horrendous. And she was very advanced in her dementia. I mean, maybe not very advanced, but for her, really advanced. And she didn't understand that she had to keep her seatbelt on on the plane. I mean, to that level. So she was like wanting to get up every minute. And it was just, we were, it was worse than traveling across the the country with two little children by myself, you know, which I had done many times to visit her. Um, and and Karen and I were just exhausted by the time we got off that plane, and I was like, "Oh my God!" And I, I had, uh, you know, I had a lot of privilege in that my mother was a, a social worker. She never was wealthy or made a lot of money, you know, but she was incredibly frugal. She grew up in the Depression, and she saved enough money to pay for her own care at the end of her life. Um, so I had the, the the great privilege for me of not having to bring her into my home which I think for both of us would have been excruciating. <laughs> yes. um, and so uh, I hadn't really done the physical part of the caregiving for her. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't had to wipe her. I hadn't had to help her to the toilet. I, you know, the other people did that. I mean, I, I was on call 24-7. There were constant emergencies. But on that trip, it was all on me. And I suddenly realized I was actually really scared about doing it. I, I didn't know if I was capable of being that close to her. You know, it was just like, I just thought there's some lines I just don't know if I could cross. Um, and yet um, she had a one, one remaining sibling, a younger sister. They hadn't seen each other in seven years and they both assumed they would never see each other again. And um, Karen and I decided to bring Temi to Florida. Um, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, the moment of seeing those two sisters who never thought they'd see each other again embrace, you know, that's that's one of the high points of my entire life. I felt like such a good person. I don't know if I've ever felt like such <laughs> I, a good person. I often, when I, I, I work a lot with people helping aging parents, um, both with good relationships and bad, you know, and in between. But um, I'll often, I, I rarely suggest looking ahead to the future. I think presence is really important, but I'll say, okay, it's five years after the death of this person and you're looking back and you're able to say, I feel good about the way I handled that. What did you do? <laughs> you know, and that would be a perfect example. You, you did the right thing in your own value system, in your own heart, 
and those things stick, don't they? They do. Time for another break. Um, I'd like you to share, though, where people can go to read the first five chapters of the book. Um, yeah, I, I, the book is out. Um, it's in uh, audiobook, it's an ebook, and it's a paperback. And I have posted the first five chapters on my website so you could get a taste of, you know, the beginning of the story. Um, and you could find that at lauradavis.net slash chapters. That's lauradavis.net slash chapters. And uh, it's it's a generous portion. And I think um, most people get hooked by the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a generous offer. So I hope people will take you up on that because um, they won't be sorry about it. Uh, as we go to the break, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com to find me or the Good Grief host page. And Laura just said where to find her, lauradavis.net. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Network comes in. Your host is Michelle Beck, a two-time breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Laura Davis the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars. And Laura, in this last um, time together, I, I, I would be really um, curious to know how you, I mean, this is something you've experienced with all your books, I know, how you put together the, the kind of backlash um, responses to talking about the subjects you talk about and the, um, the, wonderful things that happen because people are emboldened to talk about them. You know, there, you, there's um, so much response that comes when the truth is spoken, isn't there? there and is. I, I wonder, obviously that's a broader subject than your experience 
it, it folds into many people's experience. I was telling you in the break that pretty much everyone I knew in my community, when your book, The Courage to Heal came out, pretty much everyone I knew read it. <laughs> you know, And so that being that public as a lightning rod for both directions of response, um, how, do, how do you hold that and how do you keep it in a broader context? I think it's it's uh, it was harder when I was younger um, because I didn't have too much of a life, and you know my whole life was that book and was in being an incest survivor and being identified with it. And you know now if you were to say you know who are you, uh, you know I, incest survivor wouldn't even be on the list. I mean it's not that it's not part of my history, but it's 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 part of the fabric of the cloth that shaped me and. You know, now I'd say, you know, I'm an author, I'm a writing teacher, I'm a spouse, I'm a grandmother, I'm a mother, I'm a friend, I'm a mahjong player, I'm a hiker, a swimmer, you know, all right. these other things that I, that I like. So yeah. I think you I have think a full that, and complete identity. <laughs> I, so I think whatever responses like this new book generates, uh, you know, it's not that you don't like to hear praise and you don't, you know, criticism doesn't sting, but this is not, my life is not centered on this. I mean, it is like at this moment because the book is launching right now, you know, it's a brand new book, but you know, a month from now, two months from now, six months from now, um, I'll be focused. I'll be focused on my teaching. I'll be focused on other things. And, you know, the book will make its way into the world and it will lead to, you know, unexpected responses. And, you know, some of those will be very positive. I mean, they already are extremely positive. And I'm sure there'll be some people who are upset by it or don't like it or, you know, whatever. You know, I've never published a book in the, in the age of internet trolls. So I right. probably have um, <laughs> but some there's new... But been, there's been a version of that forever. It's yeah. just, it just goes crazy more now. But Well, I think anytime yeah. anyone speaks the real truth, there's going to be a backlash. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, our whole country is going through a backlash right now. So, you know, in some ways, I feel like I was in really good company that I was, I was lightning rod is the perfect word. Um, for for what my experience has been, and you know, you you put yourself out there in a public way, and you we were confronting the patriarchy, we were confronting, you know, sexual abusers, we were breaking silence in a way that hadn't been done before. We were empowering women, you know, that they could heal, you know, and they as they became more empowered, there was a backlash, and um, you know, I just think that that's part of the cycle of progress of human beings is that. We move forward as people, as a race, as, you know, groups of people, and then there's pushback, you mm-hmm. know, and then we push forward a little bit more, and then there's pushback. So I think it's it's pretty natural for that to happen. You know, I, I listened to an interview you did where you talked about that, and what it made me think about is I'm, I'm close to the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. We, my choir and theirs toured together through the South. Um, and they came out with a farcical uh, response to the right thinking that they're trying to indoctrinate their children. And it was kind of a, it, it was very entertaining. It was about, you know, yes, we're, we're trying to get them to be more welcoming and inclusive and, you know, less judgmental and all that. But the right got a hold of it. And within like about a week, of course, no one went to watch it. Um, but they started getting death threats. Uh, they had to get the FBI and the police involved. 
But what was interesting, and the reason I'm bringing it up was, at first, they took the thing down. And then within a day or two, uh, they said, no, wait, this is exactly why we do what we do. And they put it back up. But the courage it takes to be in that position is a personal kind of courage, right? You have to personally, even though you see the broader context, you have to personally have the courage to keep talking when that happens. Yeah, I mean, back to the, the courage to heal that backlash, which was you know a long time ago. Uh, we had an incredible uh, Ellen, my co-author, and I. We had a, we had a whole wedge of women. They formed a defense fund, and um, small in small bills, people started sending. Let this before the internet. They started um, sending dollar bills and five dollar bills and saying, "We've got your back," because we were sued. Um, and they they raised. We raised over seventy thousand dollars in small contributions, which which paid was all- more money than. More money, way. and it paid it paid <laughs> our share of our legal expenses. We even had uh, were able to give some back to some survivor organizations. And so, even though we were on the front lines, there was just this feeling of this like this wedge of angry, empowered women backing us up. And that's I, I actually associate that with that time a bit too in other areas like um, parenting and um, a lot of other th- fights that were being fought. Um, that same sense of coming through for each other, which was quite precious in my life and um, sounds like in yours as well. So what I want to say is that um, reading the way in which you were able to accept that your mother would never give you what you had wanted way back then, at least not directly. It seems to me she kind of implied <laughs> a few times, but um, she wouldn't directly be able to say, I believe you, but you were able to, to um, walk past that. And I don't know if you came to the point where you didn't need it anymore or just you accepted that it wouldn't happen. Maybe you could talk about that. But I, I came to love your mother. In, in the course of your book. And I'm, so, think, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, I, <laughs> I, I wanted, I, I worked really hard for that because in the, in the earlier versions, you know, the very first, took, this took 10 years to write. In the first draft, you know, she was the villain and I was the hero. And I knew that that would never do. And I, I just had to, first of all, make myself much more vulnerable. I had to show my own underbelly. And I had to be willing to embrace her good qualities as well, you know, and I had to, I had to break down my storyline about what an ogre she was. Um, And so at the end, you know, when I had my final set of, of readers, um, I knew the book was finished when people would say things to me like on this page, I hated you and loved your mother. And on this page, (laughs) I hated your mother and loved you. And then I thought I'm finished. You know, I've gotten to that place where these are two flawed human beings. You know, and I and I have to say, as a reader, that allowed me to make contact once again with the ways that I've come to appreciate my mother deeply since she died, who she was as a woman, not as my mother, even, and that that is a possibility in death. I knew all the facts before, <laughs> but somehow it deepened after she died. What she fought for. Um, how she had to be tough in a certain way, you know, all these things that 
I've, I resonated with Intemi. Um, and so I, I wanted to share that, you know, I, she was quite fierce and lovable <laughs> to me. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And maybe that's a good moment for you to share. Um, there's a place in your book that's pretty hopeful between the two of you. Uh, could you, could you read that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, both my, my brother is also a character in this book and I went to both my mother and brother at different points in the trajectory of my life as a writer and had them read the manuscript I was working on and basically said to them, is there anything you can't live with? You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I, I was really only wanted to change things if it was like really, really strong for them that they just like they'd kill you know, themselves or something. Well, not, what not what would ex- you can't live with? <laughs> well, I think you get the idea. Yes, and, I do. And I'm, my mother, I'm what both of you. them said to me, which I thought was so touching, actually, they said, uh, I'd like you to say more good things about me. It's just like so sweet and so simple. And, so simple. And so um, this is a story I added um, to the book to say something positive about my mother. Um, here's one. It happened in New Jersey when mom was still living in my childhood home. I was visiting from far away. I imagined myself in my early 20s. Maybe it was after I left the ashram at 21 when I had no idea what the rest of my life might be. Perhaps it was after I came out to her, when I was on my high horse spouting feminist philosophy, and she was certain I'd live out my life as a lonely lesbian in a seedy bar. The night before, Mom and I had agreed to call a truce on whatever conflagration was consuming us and to walk to the beach the next morning. After breakfast, we put on our windbreakers, laced up our sneakers, and headed out the front door toward the Atlantic. The moment we stepped out onto the crooked sidewalk, the sky opened as if God had decided that very day to start the flood. Sunny one moment, a downpour the next. I gasped. She gasped. We were drenched in seconds, rain soaking our clothes, dripping from our noses, saturating our skin. Our socks and shoes, soggy white cotton in rubber soles. Mom yelled out, it's raining cats and dogs. I nodded, but could barely hear her. The rain was too loud. We looked at each other, each expecting the other to run back into the shelter of the house. Mom shouted through the rain, let's go anyway. I gaped at her. Did my mother really want to get drenched with me in the rain? As she looked at me expectantly, a huge, adventurous grin spread across her face. I'd never seen that look before. Her hair was stringy and wet, her cheeks painted with rivulets of rain, her dare unmistakable. I wanted to know this woman. Yes, I shouted, grinning back. She put her arm in mine, and it felt like it belonged there, and together we turned away from the known world and the walls of my childhood home and ran out onto the soggy streets. Our glasses streaked so much we couldn't see. You know, when I read that part of the book, it made me think about all of the good moments with my mom, which, which I really appreciated being invited to think about. 
you know, because- I think my, my favorite thing I'm hearing from people is, is um, you know, who are reading it now, they're saying things like, you know, I, I haven't thought this much about my mother or my daughter my whole life, you know, or I, I know I'm going to have to take care of my mother and I've been dreading it. And now I'm thinking about it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, and one I woman, can- she, she called and she said, uh, I just want you to know, I just called my mother for the first time in 18 years. Oh my, that's got to feel incredible. Laura, I've really appreciated this conversation. Thanks for being with me. Thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure to be here. Good. Go to, go to lauradavis.net to both uh, find Laura and to get the first five chapters of her book. Next week, I'll have Shauna DeMellon, a medium who, after the loss of her son, focused her work on moms who had lost children. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.